You may be seated. And when you are, please open your copies of God's word to the book of Romans chapter eight. We're making our way through chapter eight. We're just about in the middle of the book of Romans at this point. Today we're gonna be looking at verses 12 through 17, Um, but as is our custom, we'll start reading uh, where we were last week. So what we're going to do is we're going to read from uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 17. And just to kind of set the context a little bit, you know that um, Paul has made, he's covered a lot of of ground. He's essentially indicted everyone, has told us uh, that we all need the gospel And he has explained what the gospel is, that salvation, that righteousness uh, comes from Christ, that his very righteousness is imputed to believers and their sin imputed to him, transferred to him on the cross. And he says that salvation has always uh, been this way. It's always been by faith. And he points back to Abraham and so forth. And then he starts to look at the life of the believer. He talks about that struggle that we find as we're growing in grace in chapter seven. And then he starts to zoom in in chapter eight and tell us um, about the glories really of being believers. He tells us about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, how we've been released from bondage and so forth. And then today, he'll continue to unpack the blessings of being a Christian. So with that introduction, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And here we'll end the reading of God's word. Let's come to him in prayer and ask for his blessing. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We do stand in awe. Lord, we would ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us understanding. Oh Lord, we pray that you would take this, your word preached, and that you would apply it to our hearts. Oh Lord, we'd ask that you would come into our hearts, into our minds, that you would roam around, that you would tell us what we need to hear. Lord, we pray that you'd instruct us, that you'd encourage us, that you'd build us up, and that you would strengthen our faith that we might cling to Christ. He is our only hope, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I've had uh, the privilege of having a bird build its nest in a place where I was able from my bedroom window to uh, gaze into it and kind of watch the entire process. And uh, the little baby birds, they grow up uh, fast. They're just little eggs. And and before you know it, uh, they're gone and the nest is empty, when they're getting to those last stages before they leave uh, the nest, you can see them inside um, just shuddering their wings, giving them a little uh, flutter, and they do the long flap, and before you know it, they get on the edge of uh, the nest, and they flap their little wings while they stay um, perched, you know, safely there on the nest. And you could imagine that they must be a little hesitant to take their first flight, It must be hard for them to leave the familiar comfort of their home. And just as that bird is designed to soar, as believers, we're also destined for an extraordinary journey. In this passage, the Apostle Paul unveils a message of unwavering assurance. It's like a a breeze beneath the wings that whispers, you are a child of God. And we could see that in verse 14, can't we? It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. They are all children of God. This text beckons us to embrace that identity. Just as a baby bird takes that daring leap, we're called to step into the truth that we're no longer bound by our old ways, but rather we are embraced into God's family. Just as young birds find the courage to leave the nest, we're urged to find our confidence, our security, our assurance in the identity of being God's beloved children. Just as a bird is meant to explore the open sky, we're meant to live fully unburdened by doubt, knowing that we belong, knowing that we're 
cherished. So as we meditate on this text, we're gonna ask, how can believers find unshakable assurance in their identity as children of God? And we'll begin to see uh, the answer as we consider our text under our first heading, which is the identity shift. The identity shift. Paul began the chapter by discussing the power of the Holy Spirit in lives in the lives of believers. And he highlighted the contrast between living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit. He was highlighting the contrast between Christians and non-Christians in terms of their nature. Uh, He wanted believers to know that they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and they're no longer bound by their old nature, but they are alive in Christ. And as the text continues, he delves deeper into the implications of this new life in the Spirit. In verse 12, he writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In our old unbelieving state, we were in debt to the flesh. We were bound by our sinful desires and impulses. We were enslaved to our fallen nature, driven by self-centeredness. And we... Were we pursued worldly pleasures. Paul says that this unbelieving state leads to spiritual separation from God and ultimately results in spiritual death. But in the new state of sonship in Christ, believers experience a profound transformation. Instead of being indebted to the flesh and its desires, we're now adopted into God's family through faith in Christ. This new state points to a change of identity and allegiance. We're no longer slaves of our old nature. We're considered children of God. We've been given life and freedom from condemnation. We've been forgiven and reconciled to God through Christ. We've been empowered to overcome the pull of the flesh and to put to death sinful deeds of the body through the Spirit's strength. Imagine, if you would, a tale of two lives. In one, individuals are shackled by their very desires, their enslaved to the pool of their own fleshly impulses. They're driven by selfish cravings, chasing fleeting pleasures that promise much but deliver only emptiness. It's like being in debt to a merciless creditor, a creditor that leads them down a dark path. But in the same tale, another story emerges a story of liberation, of adoption into a new family. Imagine these individuals breaking free of their chains. They're no longer indebted to the flesh, no longer slaves to its whims. Instead, they're embraced by the Spirit and they're welcomed into the family of the Almighty. There's an identity shift 
They become children of God, heirs of an inheritance beyond measure. It's a stark contrast. On one path, the pursuit of fleshly desires leads to spiritual demise. On the other, living by the Spirit becomes the very breath of life. The old path results in death while the new path leads to life. Life that isn't just mere existence, but a vibrant purpose-filled existence. In this transformation, the deeds of the old life are replaced by the deeds of the Spirit. It's a shift from debt to freedom, from captivity to to sonship. And this transition It's not merely a story, it's an invitation. It's a a reality waiting to be embraced. In verse 14, Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Notice the Spirit's active role in guiding believers. Being led by the Spirit of God isn't a passive concept. It's not like being swept along by a gentle breeze without any conscious involvement. Instead, it's an intentional, intentional, dynamic partnership, a journey where the Holy Spirit takes the lead and we willingly follow. The Spirit guides us from the allure of instant gratification, from the deceptive paths that promise satisfaction but lead to emptiness. Instead, the Spirit nudges us toward God's will, aligning our choices, our actions, and even our attitudes to his divine plan. Think about how this plays out practically. Imagine decisions made not solely for personal gain, but evaluated against the backdrop of eternal significance. Consider actions rooted in love and empathy replacing the usual self-interest. Even attitudes morph, resentment giving away to forgiveness, arrogance bowing to humility. When When Paul talks about being led by the Spirit of God, he's unveiling an active partnership a partnership that changes how we make choices, how we interact with others, and how we approach life's challenges. And the Spirit doesn't just point the way. He confirms that you are part of God's family, that you are God's child. And when Paul declares that Believers are sons of God. He's unveiling a breathtaking truth about our relationship with the Creator. That isn't a casual term, and it's not gender specific. It's a title that speaks volumes. Just as a son carries the family name with honor, this title carries with it a heritage beyond compare. You see, this is an invitation to a deeper connection, a closer intimacy with the Heavenly Father. 
Paul's proclamation of believers as sons of God is not mere rhetoric. It's a seismic shift in how you should perceive yourself and your relationship with God. Paul's inviting you to grasp the magnitude of your identity. This isn't just some theological term. It's an affirmation of your status, of your value, your eternal connection with the Father. It's a declaration that we're not orphans, but cherished children of the King. As Paul continues, he he underscores the profound intimacy that believers share with God. This leads us to our second heading, the intimate bond. The intimate bond. Paul here, in his distinct way, paints a vivid contrast between two spiritual conditions that humanity can experience. In verse 15, he writes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by who we cry, Abba, Father. You see, Paul speaks of the spirit of slavery and the spirit of adoption. The spirit of slavery conjures an image of bondage, of chains that restrict and confine. It reflects a state where fear holds sway, where the weight of guilt and condemnation press down. It's a condition where our actions, our failures, our inability to meet moral standards constantly remind us of our inadequacy. The spirit of slavery is a narrative where we strive to earn approval, yet it remains elusive. It's a relentless treadmill of fear, a cycle of striving but never arriving. Now in stark contrast, there's the spirit of adoption. Imagine a loving father who opens his arms wide to embrace a child, not because of their achievements, but out of pure affection. The spirit of adoption signifies a paradigm shift. It speaks of liberation from fear that chains us. It's a declaration that we are no longer slaves of condemnation and fear. The Greek word for adoption means to have the place of a son. The Roman world was familiar with the concept of adoption, very familiar. And so Paul uses this concept to describe the privilege of being adopted by God. Through the spirit of adoption, believers enter a familial bond with the creator of the universe. It's a bond where fear loses its grip and is replaced by the knowledge that we are accepted beyond measure. We no longer approach God with trembling uncertainty, but with confidence of beloved children who are welcomed who are welcomed into his presence. 
Imagine a child approaching their parent, certain of being heard and understood and embraced. This is the, in, the intimacy fostered by the spirit of adoption. It's a confidence that God, your heavenly father, hears your cries, knows your hearts, and delights in your presence. It's the assurance that you don't need to earn his love. It's freely given through Christ. And take note of the phrase, Abba, Father, at the end of verse 15. Paul's choice of words here, it isn't coincidental. It's deliberate. And it unveils the depth of intimacy and trust that believers can experience with their heavenly father. You see, Abba is no ordinary term. It's an Aramaic word reflective of language that Jesus himself would have used when addressing his father. Yet it's not a mere linguistic choice. It carries a resonance of affection, a sense of trust. It carries an intimacy that can only be compared to a child's endearing address to his father. Imagine a child, arms outstretched, running into the embrace of his loving father. Abba is the term that would naturally escape his lips, a term that doesn't merely acknowledge his father's role, but expresses the depth of their relationship. It's a word that transcends mere formalities. It resonates with warmth and familiarity. God wants you to understand this from the heart, to stop, to slow down, to understand this. That's why he's placed it in the word for you. It's an invitation. You see, the choice of the word Abba doesn't just signify an intellectual recognition of God's fatherhood. It signifies a heart-to-heart connection. It's like calling out to a loving parent, not with rigid formality, but with the certainty that you are heard and cherished and understood. And we see something similar as our text continues in verse 16, Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is a divine testimony. It's a resonating echo within our hearts affirming our true identity in the family of God. It's the Holy Spirit affirming you belong. You're loved. You are his. This witness is a seal, a divine stamp of authenticity confirming the bond we share with our heavenly father. 
We need this assurance. It's the antidote to doubts that may creep into our minds, the remedy to uncertainties that may attempt to shake our confidence. It's God himself through the spirit attesting that we are not orphans, not strangers, but his beloved children. Yet it's not uncommon for believers to grapple with doubts, is it? The enemy whispers questions about your worthiness, your belonging, and your standing before God. But the Spirit's witness stands firm. He's a beacon of truth in the midst of darkness. In moments on certainty, we can turn to this witness. When we question our value or wonder if we're truly embraced by God, this witness assures us that our doubts don't negate our status as children of God. The Spirit bears witness to our identity as God's children. And Paul says that if we're children, we're heirs. This leads to our third heading, the glorious inheritance. The glorious inheritance. Have you ever received an inheritance? Have you ever been someone's heir? Being chosen as someone's heir carries a deep significance of honor, doesn't it? And that's because it reflects a profound level of trust and recognition on the part of someone who leaves you this inheritance. When someone designates you as their heir, they are essentially saying that they value you and your relationship and your character enough to entrust you with their legacy and with their possessions. When Paul says that Christians are children of God, and he continues in verse 17, he says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. When Paul speaks of believers as heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, he's unveiling an astonishing reality about our divine inheritance. As children of God, we're not just recipients of grace, we're heirs of his boundless treasures. Think of it as a royal lineage. When we become part of God's family, we're embraced as heirs destined to inherit the riches of our heavenly father. But the marvel, it, it doesn't stop there. The phrase fellow heirs with Christ reveals something incredible. Imagine a royal heir sharing their inheritance with their beloved sibling. In a similar way, we are co-heirs with Christ. We share in his inheritance a breathtaking legacy of glory, honor, and eternal life. This reality reflects our position as children of God. As joint heirs with Christ, we're not just passive recipients, we're active participants in his divine purpose. 
It's as if God has entrusted us with a portion of his eternal kingdom, inviting us to share in his redemptive plan. And our inheritance isn't limited to earthly blessings. It stretches to eternity. Now consider the concept of being joint heirs with the one who holds all things. Imagine standing alongside the rightful owner of a vast estate, sharing in his authority and inheritance. This is the essence of being co-heirs with Christ. He is the king of kings, the sovereign over all creation, and as joint heirs, we align ourselves with his divine authority. As co-heirs, our identity as children of God is exalted. We're no longer distant observers. We're intricately, intricately woven into God's family tapestry. The inheritance we share with Christ is a testament to the depth of God's love for us. He desires us to partake in his divine glory and purpose. This is absolutely incredible. Again, we have to stop. If you're like me, you have to stop because it seems too good to be true. But it's God's word. And so we need, to, we need to preach to ourselves, don't we? And say, God, help me with my unbelief. You have promised that I am going to inherit. I'm a co-heir with Christ. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. Imagine a child inheriting a legacy crafted by a loving parent. Our heavenly father bestows upon us an inheritance that isn't tarnished by time or circumstance. It's a legacy of redemption, restoration, and eternal life. A legacy that reflects his enduring love for us. But notice how verse 17 ends. Paul's words, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. These words unveil a profound truth. Suffering is an integral part of our journey as believers. It's a reality that echoes through the scripture and resonates in the experience of countless followers of Christ throughout history. Yet this suffering isn't a futile ordeal. It's like a garment woven with threads of divine purpose. Suffering, though painful, isn't isolated from the grand narrative of our faith. It's a path that Christ himself walked, enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. In our suffering, we share a unique fellowship with Christ, a fellowship that unites us with him even in our pain. This fellowship illuminates our journey. It reminds us that our Savior knew the depths of suffering and yet emerged victorious. 
Suffering doesn't lead to a dead end. It paves the way to future glory. Just as a seed must go through darkness and struggle before it blooms into a magnificent flower, our trials are part of the transformative process that leads us to our ultimate destination, glorification. Suffering refines our character and deepens our dependence on God. It shapes us into vessels fit for the glory that awaits us. And it's important to recognize that suffering isn't a random occurrence. It's part of God's redemptive plan. Just as Christ's suffering paved the way for our salvation, our suffering aligns us with his divine purpose. It invites us to partake in the mystery of sharing in his sufferings for the sake of his kingdom. Paul's declarations that Christians are heirs of God invites us into this eternal narrative. It beckons us to have an eternal perspective. Our inheritance is not confined to the fleeting moments of this world. It extends far beyond resonating into eternity. And understanding this eternal perspective radically reshapes how we perceive trials and difficulties. Imagine a traveler enduring hardships on a journey knowing that a majestic destination awaits him. Similarly, our inheritance offers an eternal destination. Imagine a treasure that's not susceptible to decay or loss, a legacy that's unalterable by the passing of time. That's the nature of our inheritance as heirs of God. It's a guarantee of our status and a testament to our belonging to God's eternal family. And this assurance is not fleeting. It's eternally secured, rooted in God's unwavering faithfulness. It's rooted in Christ and the gospel. Let's return to where we began. Beside that nest of young birds on the brink of their first flight, Just as those birds had to muster the courage to leap into the sky, this text beckons us to embrace our identity shift and soar on the wings of the Spirit's guidance. Remember, you are no longer a debtor to the flesh. You are no longer bound by your old nature. The old self burdened by sinful desires has given way to the new self, sons and daughters of God, children of grace and freedom. You've undergone a shift in your identity. And recall the intimate bond we share as children of God. The spirit of adoption whispers, Abba, Father. It whispers it in our hearts, reaffirming our place in his loving embrace. The Spirit's witness resonates with us, silencing doubts and fears. We are accepted, loved, and cherished by our Heavenly Father, 
a bond that not even the darkest doubts can sever. And now as joint heirs with Christ, we step into this this glorious inheritance that awaits us. Like heirs of a vast estate, we're entrusted with a legacy of redemption and purpose. Through trials and suffering, we're refined and molded into vessels fit for eternal glory. Our inheritance isn't confined to this world, but stretches into eternity. It's eternally secure by the faithfulness of God and the finished work of Christ. You're destined, believer, you're destined to soar. Live fully, unburdened by doubt. Anchor your confidence, not in the fleeting circumstances or voices of doubt, but in your identity as God's cherished child. Embrace the truth that you are a child of God, intimately known, unconditionally loved, and eternally secure. And may this truth shape every decision, every action, and every attitude. And as you journey forward, let your heart cry be Abba, Father, a cry of intimacy, trust, and unwavering faith. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. We are so grateful for passages like this. Oh Lord, so often you know our, li- our eyes get fixed on the law and they get fixed on ourselves and we spiral down always prone to trying to earn our salvation. Oh Lord, help us to fully place ourselves in the finished work of Christ. Oh Lord, help us that we would know this identity, that we would embrace it fully. Your beloved children, Lord, take this text, emboss it on our hearts, make it burn, repeating over and over in our minds. We are beloved children of God and we have an inheritance glorious. Lord, you are good. So good. We'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.